0: Now, the purpose and intention behind Jude writing this letter that we have before us tonight that we're studying is um, to give to us a warning and an exhortation. A warning, he tells us in the opening verses of the book, concerning certain men that have crept into the rank and file of the church undetected or unawares that have secretly brought in heresies and false teaching and false lifestyles that have the potential of causing shipwreck among the saints of God. And so he writes to them that they might, he says, earnestly contend or fight for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. And so he tells us that this is the reason for his letter. It's that we might fight for the faith. Now, last week, we answered the question, what is the faith that was once delivered unto the saints? What is it that we're to fight for? And so tonight, as we continue in picking up in verse 5, what Jude does from this point on is he answers the questions, first of all, what's at stake? So if there are men that have crept in that are seeking to uh, turn the grace of God into something else that are seeking to twist the person of Christ and the person of God and to make him something else Then what's at stake for those that follow their ways? And so he answers that question tonight then he answers the question. Who are these men? And how can we recognize them even in the present day uh, because they still exist even unto this day? And then he closes the letter by answering the question of what are we to do? or Where is our defense uh, personally so that we might not find ourselves uh, subverted in any way? And so he begins in verse five and he answers the question of what's at stake. Now, if there's no consequence to following after these certain men that have crept in unawares, then there's no reason for Jude to write. And so what he does now in verse five is he says to us this. He says, I will therefore put you in remembrance or bring back to mind. I will remind you, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And example number two, "'The angels, which kept not their first estate, "'but left their own habitation, "'he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness "'unto the judgment of the great day.'" And then verse seven, example number three, he says, "'Even as Sodom and Gomorrah "'and the cities around them in like manner, "'giving themselves over to fornication.'" And going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And so he begins this warning passage now, or this reminder passage, um, but with the word therefore. And what therefore always does is connects the thing that he has just said to the thing that he is about to say. And so essentially, what he is saying here is that because of these certain men that have crept in seeking to change the Christian faith into something that it is not, I want you to be remembering these three things that you already know, but that are so critical for you and serve as warnings for you so that you don't go after these certain men that have crept in unawares. And so the first example that he gives is ancient Israel and he says concerning them that they had been saved out of the land of egypt and that afterward after it was that they were saved out of egypt something happened to their faith their faith changed To a place where they had believed the right way in the things of God. But when their faith changed, they no longer believed the right way concerning the things of God. And they moved from a place of believing in God to a place where God looked at them and he said, You do not any longer believe in me. Faith had been subverted. So the faith that was delivered unto them was changed into something else. And what it resulted in was a destruction. And what it was for the children of Israel is it was apostasy, that is, turning away from God, and the reason for their apostasy, by and large, was disillusionment. So God had saved them out of the land of Egypt. And for those of you that are students of the Old Testament, you understand that God saving Israel out of Egypt was a picture of God saving you and I out of the world, Egypt being a picture or a parallel of the world. And so God saved these people out of the world, and then... They changed their faith to a place where they believed not, and it was because of their disillusionment. They didn't like the ways of God. They didn't like the place that God had prepared for them in the season of their wandering in the wilderness. They didn't like the difficulty of of what their life looked like now that they were set free from Egypt. They weren't fond of the provision of God and the way that he was providing for them. Though he was providing for them, it wasn't good enough for them. And so because of that disillusionment, thinking that life would be something that it wasn't in that initial season after their salvation, many of those people turned their backs on God, desired to go back into Egypt, and thus... Uh, they were destroyed. And as you read uh, the testimonies in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, you read about the various destruction that was brought upon the people of God in those different seasons. And so he gives us warning concerning our own lives. And he said, be careful that you don't fall after the same example of ancient Israel, that though you came out of the world saved by grace through faith, yet you became disillusioned in your mind thinking that it would be something that it wasn't, and in your mind, now you turn back to go back into the ways of the world. Beware, because you don't stand in a place of security if you do that. The second example that he gives is concerning the angels, which he says kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, and that are now kept in store, that is, they're secured in a place where God has them locked up, in order that they might be released in the judgment of the last times. He tells us concerning this angels that they kept not their first estate. The word estate is the word rank. That is that God had provided a place for them. He had created them for a purpose. And they were to serve within that purpose. But they weren't content with the purpose and the lot that God had given to them. And so rather than maintaining that lot and staying in the place that God had made them for, they decided to rebel against God and leave that place. Now, Revelation chapter 12, um, verse, I believe it's verse 3, tells us that when Satan fell, that he drew one-third of the angels with them. That, no doubt, is the group of, of the angelic realm that Jude is talking about here when he says the angels which kept not their first estate. It's where we get the, the the term or the phrase fallen angels. Those that had rebelled with Satan against God, they became the fallen angels. He tells us that they left their own habitation. The word that Jude uses that's translated habitation in the English, Paul uses that word in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 2 to refer to a body. And so essentially what Jude is talking about here is he's talking about those fallen angels in the days of Noah that kept not their first estate, but that came into the world, impregnated the daughters of men, and caused all kinds of problems in the world, problems that we're still facing and feeling with today you say I don't know what you're talking about just hang on we're going to the book of Genesis next we'll be in chapter 6 before you know it and we'll get into it then (laughs) but the idea that Jude is bringing before you and I tonight is that they were these angels once in a certain position yet they left the position that God had ordained for them because they were discontent with it And now they're in a place where they're awaiting judgment. They've fallen from the grace of God or the position that God had had them in. And now they're reserved for judgment unto the last days. And so it's an example of apostasy that is turning the back on God because of discontentment. They weren't happy with what God had provided for them, the place that God had put them, and so they turned their backs on God and they rebelled against him, and thus they are no longer in a place of security in their salvation. The third example that he gives concerns the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities that surround them round about. And what he says concerning them is that they are those that have given themselves over unto fornication and then unto strange flesh and therefore they're set forth as an example suffering the vengeance or the repayment of eternal fire because of what they have done. He says that they have given themselves over. The idea behind that is that those cities and the citizens of those cities, they were one thing and they were in a specific place. Now, the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 21, that at one point, Sodom and Gomorrah were cities of people that knew God. He says in Romans, chapter 1, verse 21, that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful but they traded the, 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 the glory and the image of God for a created image and they made the glory of God like unto an image, like unto corruptible man, uh, four-footed beasts, creeping things, and, and all the rest. And so what Paul tells us that Genesis doesn't tell us and really that Jude kind of alludes to here is that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were at one time cities that knew God. There were people in those cities that knew God but it says that they gave themselves over to something else. And you'll notice that that giving over was by degrees in the book of Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 Ezekiel tells us by the spirit of God. And he says this, he says, behold, this was the iniquity or the sin of thy sister, Sodom. And here's what the sin of Sodom was. He says, pride, fullness of bread, Abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Now, typically, when we think about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's not what we're thinking about, is it? I mean, when I say Sodom and Gomorrah, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? It's the end of their sin, the furthest place in their degeneration. But what God saw when He looked at Sodom and Gomorrah is that the root of their sin. Was this that there was pride fullness of bread abundance of idleness and lack of concern for the poor that that's where it began. They had so much blessing and so much abundance and they weren't thankful for the blessing and the abundance that they had. They didn't glorify God for it. They didn't give him honor and return the Thanksgiving for what he had done. And it says that they their foolish hearts became darkened in the abundance of what they had. So what is what happened. Well, then they took it to the next level, and sin crept in, and first they gave themselves over to fornication. Now, what's fornication? Fornication is unrestrained sexual desire and sin. It's the expression of sexual things outside of the confines of covenantal biblical marriage that God created as the confines for sexual activity. That's what fornication is. What we would call it is good, old-fashioned American sin right they weren't crossing the lines they weren't being deviant they weren't lusting women for women and men for men this was just normal heterosexual sin but it didn't stop there and it never stops there sin slides by degrees and over time that no longer satisfied and they had to do more deviant things, stranger things in order to satisfy the lust that they had had at the beginning. And thus, we read the rest of the story again in Genesis of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah where they lusted exceedingly the one for another. Um, and, And you can read the story again. We'll get into it in Genesis. But what's the idea? Is that they were one thing. They were cities that knew God. But because they were not thankful and then they gave themselves over and then they became... Degenerated by degrees, they suffered the example, or they serve as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So, what Sodom and Gomorrah represent for you and I is an example of apostasy because of degeneration. That is, giving themselves over to things that they had no business being a part of as the people of God. And so, three examples that Jude holds before us apostasy because of disillusionment. Apostasy because of discontentment and apostasy because of degeneration. Now, I want to say here concerning these things, there is a world of difference between someone who's coming out of the world and gaining victory over the sins that they struggled with prior to their salvation and someone who has already been out of the world and been set free from those things and now turns back and goes into them. There's a world of difference in that. Now, I know personally, my own experience, and for many of you, we came out of the world and we were steeped in sin. There was all kinds of problems in our lives. And we weren't immediately set free from every one of them. There was residual things that hung on for some of us longer than we would have liked. But God gives us victory and he brings us through those things and those chains, shackles, and yokes are broken from off of our back. But once we come into a place of freedom where God has now liberated us from those things that held us captive, if we turn our backs on God because we're disillusioned, discontent, or we're just degenerate, and we go back into those things, then we do not have the the liberty to say, well, I'm once saved, always saved, and so I can do whatever I want and sin however I want, and God's going to receive me into heaven because of Jesus Christ. That's a wicked thing to do. The Bible says that we're trampling underfoot the blood and the grace of God. And so Jude warns us here, and he says, I put you in remembrance, listen, that if you turn your back on God and you move from a place from faithful to where God now looks and he says you are faithless and it's proved by your behavior, then you no longer have the security to stand in confidence in me. And so Jude gives this warning concerning these people. Now he says in verse eight, bringing the example to connect it to the certain men that crept in unawares. He says, likewise in verse eight. Also these. Now the these, you can just circle that and then draw an arrow pointing back over to verse four where he talks about the certain men that have crept in unawares. These, and now he gives the profile of these four men, and he describes them with four words. He says, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. He says, first of all, the profile of these men that crept in is that they're dreamers. The idea behind dreamers is that they walk after their own imaginations. They imagine that they've been called by God when in fact there is no calling of God at all in their life. They imagine that God is speaking to them and speaking through them when God's assessment is that there's no such speaking going on. They've dreamed it up of themselves and they've put it forward in spiritual jargon as though God is speaking to them. They're dreaming themselves into a position that God has not called them into. Second of all, he calls them defilers, those that have no regard for personal holiness and the sanctity of God and obedience to his word. They defile the flesh. They give people license to live the way that they want and justify them in their sin, causing people to err. Third, he says they despise dominion. They're despisers specifically of authority. They want to live autonomously and thus they don't want to be in submission to anyone and they want to be the highest authority, saying that they hear directly from God and that there's no one that they need to answer to because they hear from God alone. Now, the Spirit, even Jesus himself, is always under submission. Jesus said, I do always only those things that please my Father. And he was the perfect example of authority with submission. And authority and submission always go together. Now, our fallen flesh hates authority. Every one of us are rebels at heart. We want to be autonomous in our flesh. But when the Spirit of God dwells in us, then we recognize the safety that comes with submission, that God has ordained it, that every one of us both have authority and that we're under submission. But he says these will not be under submission. They won't receive instruction or correction. They say they hear directly from God. And thus, they don't need to receive from anyone. And then third, they are defamers. They speak evil of dignities or those that are in authority. Now, we talked about Diotrephes a few weeks ago from 3 John in the letter. And Diotrephes was a defamer. Anyone else who had any spiritual influence, he could find a way to undercut them and put them down under to make himself look better. And so the profile of these certain men is that they're dreamers, defilers, despisers of authority, and defamers of others like them. Jude comments, he says, yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not or dared not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts or base animals, they just walk according to animal instincts. They don't have the spirit of God. In those things, they corrupt themselves. Now, you say, what in the world is Jude talking about when he says Michael the archangel contending with the devil over the body of Moses didn't bring against him any kind of railing accusation? You say, where's the account of that in the Bible? The answer is, it's not in the Bible, except for right here. Now, what do we know concerning this fight between Michael and Satan? We know that it happened. How do we know? Because it's in the Bible right here. Jude says it happened. And so we know it happened. We also assume that the audience to whom Jude was writing, that they were familiar with the passage, or at least the tradition because he writes to them in such a common matter of fact way that he assumes that his audience knows about these things. So we know that it happened. We know that they pretty much knew that it happened in those days. But what we don't know is why, or what it had to do with anything. Why was the devil, contending with Michael about the body of Moses. And you can think about it. You can Google it and ask Siri what she thinks and why that whole thing went down. But at the end of the day, we don't know why they were fighting. But what we do know is this, is that even Michael the archangel, who outranked Satan, who was a fallen demon and deserved to be defamed, that even he wouldn't speak evil against him. But he directed his full attention towards God. And so I just as an example of how these certain men will defame dignities or authority, a sign of someone who's truly under the submission and spirit of God and under his influence won't do such things. So he says now in verse 11, woe unto them. And he gives us three more examples in order to help us identify them. How can we identify what's driving these certain men? He says, woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsayings of Korah. And so he gives three examples of Old Testament figures that help us to identify the driving force behind these certain men that have crept in. The first example that he gives concerns Cain. Now, Cain was the brother of Abel, the first two descendants of Adam and Eve, the first man and woman that God created. And Cain represents for us in the Bible religion of self-effort. We've talked plenty about him in the past. Again, we'll be in Genesis, and just over the next couple of weeks, we'll see Cain and see his story. But what Cain represents is a religion of self-righteousness, self-effort, and works, trying to please God and serve God in the strength of his own flesh without a calling of God. And that always results in bitter jealousy, which it did in Cain because he couldn't understand why Abel was accepted by God when he himself was rejected. And that, of course, brought murder. Cain killed Abel and then he was obstinate and wouldn't submit to the correction and the rebuke of God in it. And so Cain is a picture of spiritual pride and self-righteousness, religion of works that won't submit to God and that won't repent when it's called and, and the sin is revealed. Cain is the picture of self-will. And he's an example of a leader who rules according to a self-calling A self-gratifying ministry with self-gratifying purposes. He's the picture of self-will. The second example that he gives is Balaam. Now, Balaam, Jude tells us, was motivated by greed. Balaam was a man who learned how to work the spiritual angles with no regard of how the consequences would play out in the lives of God's people. And again, we don't have the time tonight to develop the whole story of how Balaam uh, was apostate in the whole thing, but basically he was a prophet of God who used his calling and his giftings to benefit and enrich himself at the expense of God's people, all the while while appeasing his own conscience and thinking that he was doing the right thing. And what Balaam is a picture of is a false teacher that's motivated selfishly. In other words, they're going to use the ministry of God in order to gain what they can from the ministry and what they can get. And then the third illustration that he gives is concerning this man, Korah. And the story of Korah is given to us in Numbers chapter 16. And what Korah did was that in the days of Moses, Korah gathered to himself 250 of the princes in Egypt, those that were leaders under Moses' authority and under his direction, And he launched a rebellion against Moses and he intruded or tried to intrude into an area of ministry that he was not called into. He took his 250 men and they went to Moses and they said, you take too much upon yourselves. Have God spoken only by you? Is not the whole congregation holy? God can speak also by us. And he launched this rebellion and he turned the people's hearts against the leadership of Moses, which had been established by God. Now, Jude calls it the gainsaying of Korah. The word gainsaying is in the Greek, it's anti or antilogia, which means against the word, meaning that he wasn't called by God. God hadn't established Korah as a leader and he was seeking to intrude into an area of service or ministry or authority that God had not called himself into. And what he is a picture of is someone who desires power And they see the body of Christ and the people of God as an opportunity to exercise that power. And they don't care how or who they have to use in order to do it. And so self-will, pictured in Cain, self-motivation, pictured in Balaam, and a desire for power, pictured in Korah. These are the things that drive these apostate teachers that would seek to turn you away from the pure faith of God. Now, Jude gives to us in verses 12 through 19, 13 descriptions of these men. And he's quite poetic and quite picturesque in the way that he does it. Notice what he says. It's beginning in verse 12. He says, first of all, these are spots in your feasts of charity or in your love feasts when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. The word spots, when he says that there's spots in your love feasts, the word in the, um, in the Hebrew or the Greek language is "spilas," And what it literally is, is, a, is an outcropping in the rock under the surface of the water that would scrape the base of a ship as it came by, thinking that it was a certain distance from the shore. And so the idea is a ship is sailing in assumably safe waters, but there's an outcropping in the rock under the surface that can't be seen that tears a hole under the boat and causes it to sink. And Jude says that that's what these false teachers are. They're outcroppings in the rock, and you think that you're sailing along, you think you're in a safe place spiritually, that everything is just fine, but then, bam, you're hit by their doctrine Your ideals and ideas concerning God are changed. And the next thing you know, you're taking on water spiritually and you begin to sink. His description of these spots, as he calls them, is he says that they are shepherds that without fear feed themselves on you. That they they could care less what happens to you as long as they end up being taken care of in the end. He goes on to call them in the second half of verse 12, clouds they are without water carried about of winds the second description that he gives is clouds without water now what that is is that it gives the appearance as though it's going to supply something necessary and something refreshing and needful but in fact all it really does is it doesn't give the thing that it promises but it, it gives you an opportunity to hide from the light that's the only thing a cloud without water does. There is nothing worse than a cloudy day that brings no rain. I mean, at least if there's going to be clouds, let it you know, water the garden and make sure that we have food in the grocery stores, right? But if there's clouds with no water, then that just brings depression, right? the absence of light. And he says, that's what these are. They're clouds, but they carry no water. They give people a place to hide, appease their conscience so that they don't have to come into the light. But they serve no real purpose in the process. He says that they're carried about with winds. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul describes for us what winds are spiritually. You know what they are? He calls them winds of doctrine or winds of teaching. You can always recognize a false teacher because they keep their finger on the pulse of whatever doctrine or teaching is making waves within the church. And then they latch onto that and they ride it the best they can. And so you go to Christian book distributors or you go to the Christian bookstore and you see the books that are on the bestseller list. And they're books, you know, this month it's, you know, how to heal your marriage or how to enjoy your sex life in the Lord or how. And then you go to church and you notice that, hey, the sermon series this week is how to enjoy your sex life in the Lord. They're they're just capitalizing on the winds that are sweeping through the church at that particular time. He says they're carried about with winds. Whatever's going to bring in a crowd. He says they're clouds carried carried about by winds. Then he calls them, thirdly, trees whose fruit withers. And the idea there, when when it talks about a tree whose fruit withers, is that it's an autumn tree. So it's in the autumn time that the leaf begins to wither, that the fruit, in other words, it's the time of the year when harvest should be brought in. The tree should be bearing fruit. But rather than bearing fruit, these trees, he says, are without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Don't you love it when someone tells the truth? This is called clarity (laughs) that Jude is bringing to us right here. He says they're trees and they give the appearance as though there should be fruit on them. But when you go to find the fruit on them, you find that there's none. This happened in the ministry of Jesus, you'll recall remember it was when jesus was descending into jerusalem for the final time when he would go to the cross and it says he rose up early in the morning and he came into the city and he was hungry and he saw a fig tree and seeking fruit thereon he went to the tree lifted up the leaves and behold there was no fruit upon the tree and jesus looked at that tree and he said out loud so that his disciples could hear him he said no man eat from you henceforth forever and it says that even presently while he spoke those words the tree began to wither and when they returned that way a day later The tree was completely dried up and dead And the disciples said lord the tree that you cursed look at it It's withered up and jesus used it as an opportunity to teach on faith But that's the idea here behind a tree that should be in a season of fruit, but there's no fruit on it It has leaves and an appearance But it can bear no real fruit because it's not a living tree. Jude says it's twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Jesus said in Matthew chapter, I think it's 15 verse 13. He said that every tree that my heavenly father has not planted will be plucked up or plucked out. And so though these trees exist... Yet the time is coming when they no longer will. He calls them next in verse 13, number four, he calls them raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. Now, what's a raging wave of the sea? A raging wave is something that is alluringly beautiful, energetic, but extremely dangerous. And if anyone's ever been caught in a riptide or in a raging wave of the sea, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. From the shore, there's nothing more captivating as you see it there and you look at it and you're drawn in by its energy and its size and its grace as it just kind of curls over. But if you were swimming in that, that raging wave, you would be buried in it and it says that it foams out its own shame. The idea behind that foaming out its own shame is that they foam out from their own shame. In other words, there's an energy that comes out of these false teachers but what that energy is doing is that it's covering up the shame that they secretly know is existing underneath the surface, and it acts as a facade to hide from that shame. And so, foam that rages, waves that rage from the sea. A couple of years ago, there was a, a pastor in the Calvary Chapel circle of pastors that I admired very greatly. He was very effective. He had made an impact in my life, and I thought that his ministry and his church was a model of what churches should be. And I thought, Lord, if I could be even partially like that in my ministry, uh, then I would be happy going to heaven with that uh, as my credentials. And, and then I got a phone call from Pastor Bobby on a specific evening. I remember right where it was when it was, and and, and I called him up and um, and I said, "Yeah, what is it?" And he and he told me uh, the name, and he just said the name. And when he said the name, I knew what he was saying, I knew what he was implying, I knew what had happened. And it crushed me to hear. What happened, what that man had been involved in. He had had multiple affairs. He had had a problem with pornography for many years. Um, There was a double life that was going on behind the scenes that nobody knew about at all. Uh, And it was all exposed in in, in just one particular moment. The entire thing was known, everything that he did. When I heard about that, I sat on the edge of my bed for about a half an hour and I couldn't speak because of this whole thing. And I remember the first words that came out of my mouth when I heard heard it was, what is this? Is this just a game? Like this, uh, is this a game? Like it, what are we doing? What is this all about? And the whole thing. And when that happened, it changed me. It did something inside of me. It changed the whole direction, the way I thought about church, the way I thought about ministry, the way I thought about pastors, preachers, the whole thing, everything changed. It took me a long time to process all of that and to, to really try to understand it and, and to, to weigh it out in its context. And I remember on a, uh, on a particular um, instance, I was driving a pastor from here down to one of the New York City airports after a Wednesday night service, and um, we were just conversating, and um, it was freshly in the wings of, of this whole exposure that happened, and I asked him the question, and I said, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about this, this whole thing that happened? And I'll never forget the answer that he gave to me, and this, this is exactly what he said verbatim. He said, about 10 years ago, he said, I had the, the, the privilege and the opportunity to meet a man named Bill Hybels, And Bill Hybels is uh, a pastor somewhere in the middle states of the country, very successful ministry. I'm not personally familiar with him, but uh, has been very effective. And and don't write me letters about whether he's good or bad. I honestly don't know anything about Bill Hybels. He could be horrible. I'm just telling you what this man said to me. And he said, I had the opportunity to meet Bill Hybels. And he said that he was the nicest man that I've ever met in my entire life. He took time with you when he was talking to you. You were the only one in the room. He was genuine. He was sincere. He said he had a lot of energy, and he was extremely driven. He said, then two years after that, he said, I met Rick Warren. And many of us know that name. He wrote The Purpose Driven Life. And he said, I spent some time with Rick Warren. And these were his words, not mine. He said, Rick Warren was a total jerk. He said he, he, he was disrespectful, he was arrogant, he was proud, he was demeaning. He said he had a lot of energy and he was extremely driven. And then he was silent. And that was the end of that conversation. And that was probably one of the most valuable lessons I ever learned, having that conversation with that man that night. Because essentially what he said to me is that in my ministry and my observation of however 30-something, 40-something years of ministry is that all you need to do to have a thriving ministry that is successful in the eyes of the world is to have a lot of energy and be extremely driven. And I learned from that. And what my prayer became is rather, Lord, I want to be like this ministry or I want to be modeled like that ministry. What my prayer became After that whole experience was, Lord, I want to be safe. I want to be a safe pastor. If you've called me to do this, then let me carefully and faithfully bring your word and your person and a right representation of who you are to your people to the best of my ability, and then do what you want with that. That's the true ministry. But raging waves of the sea, driven, energetic, without any true substance, in some cases without even true salvation. He calls them next wandering stars. The Bible likens Christians or saints unto stars. But these are wandering stars. The word wandering in the Greek is the word planetes. It's where we get the English word planet. And the idea behind a planet is that it's a planet in the orbit of a solar system. Now, to the naked eye, you can't tell the difference between a planet and a star when they appear in the night sky. Someone who's skilled and trained can, but to the casual observer, they look very similar. They're both about the same size. They both reflect light in a certain way. The difference is this. One of those, the star, is in the far distant cosmos, fixed in its place, and its light comes from within. A planet Is out there it's just not far enough out there and it doesn't produce any of its own light it's just simply a reflection of borrowed light it's getting from somewhere else what's the idea the idea is that the false teacher can look just like the sincere teacher to the casual observer but what's in them and what's coming out of them is completely different from what's coming out of the real thing which is fixed in its place set there by God he says that they're wandering stars Four times in the next two verses, he calls them the next title, number six, and that is that they are ungodly or without fear. He says, "'And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, "'Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints.'" To execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard or harsh speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Do you get the idea of what he's trying to say here? They're ungodly. The word ungodly is without fear. They have no fear of God. And because they have no fear of God, their actions and deeds reflect in their behavior that they have no fear of God. And that's what these men produce because that's what they are. He says in verse 16 that these are murmurers. The word murmurer literally is that they're slanderers of other people. Then he says that they're complainers. That is that they complain about situations and circumstances. He says nextly that they walk according to their own lusts. They walk according to their own desires. They're lusty. And then he says, number 10, that they speak with their mouth, great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. The word uh, great swelling words, it speaks of flattery, that they'll flatter people for the sake of having an advantage of getting in with them and, and somehow propping themselves up on the people that can bring advantage into their lives. And then in verse 17, he says, but speaking now to you and I. He says, but beloved, remember ye, call back into your mind the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there would be mockers or scoffers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. Now, this is a direct quotation from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, where Peter wrote one of the apostles, and he said that in the last days, scoffers will come walking after their own lusts he's saying listen take heed to the warning that you've been given by the way this very verse is the reason why we suppose that jude who is the author of this book is not the apostle jude because he would have included himself in with the apostles but he doesn't he says remember what them the apostles said unto you concerning that was aside but anyways then he says in verse 19, the final three descriptions of these men that Jude obviously doesn't like too much. He says, these be they who separate themselves. That is that they're denominational or schismatic. They see themselves as the own authority. They don't want any of their people receiving truth from any, anyone else or from any other source. They are the source that they're to come to. He says, twelfth that they are sensual, the idea behind sensual is that they're natural. They're, they're, they're void of any godly influence at all, which he closes with, finally, by saying, having not the spirit. And so they're schismatic, they're natural, and they do not have a Christ-like nature. They don't have the Holy Spirit of God living within them. And so Jude gives us a very comprehensive uh, understanding of the way that these people are, what drives them, what motivates them. But here's the amazing thing. In all of this is that to the casual observer, they look just like the sincere. This has always been. And this will always be in this earth concerning the things of God and the people of God. When Moses brought the people out of Egypt, we read that there was a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt with the people. The mixed multitude means that there were some that were saved and some that weren't, although they were all lumped in with God's people. When David was being raised up by God to become the great king of Israel, and he had 600 men that were with him, many of them would become David's mighty men. It tells us that there were men of Belial, men of Satan, amongst David's 600. So even in David's small company of 600, there were some there that were men of Satan, and they were identified that, as that by the, by the Spirit of God. When Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of God, even into the future of today's age, he told the parable of the wheat and the tares. The wheat and the parable being the true believers, those that truly know God and love God and have been called by God and are walking with him. And the tares, the bearded Darnell, a weed that looks exactly like wheat and cannot be discerned from the other until the time of harvest. And he said, Jesus Did that there would be weeds or tares among the wheat. And the apostles asked the question, and they said, well, what should we do about that? Should we get rid of the tares? Should we go in and pluck them out? And Jesus said, no, don't do that. Otherwise, you might potentially harm the wheat in the process. He said, listen, let them grow together until the end, and then the angels will sever the wicked from among the just. What's the point? The point is that it's always going to be like this. That there's going to be false mixed in with the true, and it's going to be difficult to discern one from the other. You say, well, great. What's the point of this whole Bible study then? I should have stayed home if I have no hope. No, 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 there is hope, and here's why. You say, what am I to do? How can I be protected? Jude gives the answer in the close of the epistle. Notice in verse 20. He says, but you, beloved, and here's what we're to do. Number one. Building up yourselves on your most holy faith. How do we build up ourselves on our most holy faith? Romans chapter 10, verse 17. It says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? God's word. The word of God. That's right. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How is it that we will build ourselves up in the true faith, the holy faith? is that we continually are to give ourselves to the study and the learning and the hearing of God's word. Constant ingesting of the scriptures. It's an essential for you and I. I hope daily Bible study, daily Bible reading is a part of your Christian experience because it's a key to surviving, especially in the deception of the last days. He says, secondarily, praying in the Holy Ghost. What does it mean to pray in the Holy Ghost? It means to take time in the presence of the Lord and to converse with him, to be filled with his spirit and then to pray. Does it talk about, does this mean praying in tongues? Yes, in one context and in one light, yes. Is it only praying in tongues? No, absolutely not. Romans chapter eight, verses 26 and 27 says that God helps our infirmities when we don't know how to pray as we ought, but he gives us the Holy Spirit that prays through us According to the will of God because he knows what is the will of God and he hears even the groanings that come out of our heart and out of our mouth But it's something that we're to do It's how we build ourselves up in our most holy faith is that we converse and fellowship with God I hope that daily fellowship and prayer is a part of your Christian experience Because it's vital in terms of defending ourselves against being deceived in the deception of the last days He says, thirdly, in verse 21, that we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Well, what is the love of God? The love of God, first of all, is the true gospel, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So as we abide in the true gospel, we're abiding in God's love. That's what God's love is. But Jesus took it a step further concerning our individual stance on things when he said that he that loves me is the one that obeys my commands. And so keeping ourselves in the love of God is not simply hearing the word of God and mouthing words in prayer, but allowing when we hear the word of God for that to be translated into heart work and footwork so that our lives reflect the things that we're learning. We're not just hearers of it, but we're doers of the word. We're obeying what he said. I challenge you this, leaving the study, is that when you give yourself to the word of God, your daily devotions or Bible studies, that you challenge yourself that there's going to be at least one thing that you're going to do from what God gave to you. Now, I'm not talking about works that were saved by works, but you say, God, I'm going to read your word until there's something in me that you can put your finger on that can be changed. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, fourthly, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. It's a reference to the second coming, that we're to keep our hearts and our minds fixed on heaven. I've said it in studies past that if this earth becomes our home, we're on our way to being deceived and ultimately shipwrecked. We must understand our citizenship is in heaven, not on this earth. And then he says, fifthly, in verse 23, verse 22, rather, he says, and of some or on some have compassion making a difference and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. The idea is that we're to be about our father's business in reaching souls, lost souls for salvation in his kingdom. It's an interesting concept that Jude presents before us that not all people are reached the same way, isn't it? Some people are reached with compassion. What's compassion? Compassion is common emotion. That is, seeing where someone is coming from. Sometimes we look at a sinner and we think, that rotten sinner. Compassion doesn't do that. Compassion says, why are they the way they are? And once we understand that, it allows us to come alongside a person and love them and make a difference in their life that they might repent and come to Christ. And that's the way we're to deal with some. But others, he says, save with fear, hating even the garment that's spotted by the flesh. There's some that we have to come alongside and we say, hey, if you keep living the way that you're living, I'd hate to end up where you're gonna end up and seek to strike a chord of fear within them. But we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and how we do it. But Jude's point is this, is that part of not being carried away in the foolishness of the last days is to be engaged in the work of the Lord. Be about the salvation of other people. And then his benediction in closing, and the musicians can come. He says, Now unto him, speaking of God, that is able to keep you from falling. Now, do you notice the play on words there? Back up a couple of verses, Jude said, Keep yourselves in the love of God. And now he says, unto him that is able to keep you from falling. What's the idea? The idea is that if we do our part, which is to keep ourselves in a place of obedience and in the love of God, then he'll do his part, which is to keep us from falling. And there's a relationship of sustaining and preservation that brings us from where we are to where we're ultimately going. And to present you faultless before his presence, the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That's what the blood of Jesus Christ does. It presents us faultless before the throne of God with joy to the only wise God, our savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And so we close the book of Jude and for now our study of the New Testament. But what struck me as I was finishing my preparation of this and just reflecting where we've been as a Wednesday night group over the past several months is that it seems as though God has emphatically, by His Spirit, been giving to us a common warning through the book of Hebrews, through the book of James, through 1st and 2nd Peter, through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and now through Jude. And the warning that has carried through all the way since we started Hebrews has been this. Beware of the deception of the last days. It's going to be strong. And I believe we're living in days of great deception. And we must be on guard as church and as Christians against the temptation to turn our backs on God, maybe because we're disillusioned, maybe because we're discontent with what God's doing in our lives and the place that he has us, or because little by little, by slow degrees, we've been degrading and bringing ourselves back under the bondage of sin that we've been set free from. And God says this, he says, listen, keep yourselves in the love of God. Look for the mercy that is to come. Be about your father's business. Maintain a passionate prayer life. Stay in the word. Stay close. Don't be deceived. Amen? Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We pray tonight as we conclude this study and as we hear what Jude has to say to us, we ask you, Lord, that you would burn a conviction into our hearts. We ask that you would give us discernment as we need it in the days that we live in. And the Father, we would find ourselves on the right side of faith that we would be able to contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints and that we would be able to defend ourselves against the deception that seeks to bring us aside. So help us, Lord. Help your church. Help the church in the United States of America. Help the churches in Dutchess County. Help us as individual Christians, O Lord, that we would burn as bright lights, not wandering planets, but stars fixed and stable and whole. And I pray tonight, Lord, for anyone that might be here that is struggling, that in their heart they know that they've turned back from you, that they're not in the place that they should be, that even now, Lord, you would guide and lead them back home by your right hand. For it was you that said, as our shepherd, that you would lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake. And so I pray for those who needed adjustment, who need to be brought back. Oh, God, that you would do that even now as we sing. So be with us. We thank you, Lord. We trust you tonight. We declare faith in the name of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for his cross and for your salvation. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen.